Mushing Radio presents the 1925 Serum Run. Remember to subscribe to Mushing Radio so you don't miss an episode. Catch up with previous episodes on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, or at mushingradio.com. Previously on the 1925 Serum Run. In January 1925, Dr. Curtis Welch of Nome notices an uptick of patients with severe coughs. After several deaths, he determines that the cause is diphtheria. An epidemic of diphtheria is almost inevitable here. Stop. I am in urgent need of one million units of diphtheria antitoxin. Stop. The Board of Health unanimously votes for a dog sled relay to bring 300,000 units of antitoxin from Anchorage to Nome. A carefully wrapped 20-pound package of antitoxin is put on a northbound train where it meets the first dog sled team outside Fairbanks. It's 50 degrees below zero when the train reaches the first dog team of Wild Bill Shannon. It may have made more sense to wait until morning, but Shannon says, if people are dying, let's get started. Meanwhile in Nome, legendary musher Leonard Seppala sets out with a team of 20 dogs determined to mush to the halfway point, turn around and mush back to Nome with the antitoxin. As teams bring the antitoxin down the trail, newspapers all around the US and then all over the world pick up the story. Senators and even the president comment on the relay using heroic terms to describe the valiant dogs and their human drivers. As if to amplify the needs of Alaskans, a deadly freeze settles into the lower 48, causing multiple deaths in the Northeast and freezing the Hudson River solid. No mayor, George Maynard, sends out anxious missives to reporters, sometimes exaggerating conditions because he knows it will make a better story and attract more attention to Nome's urgent needs. More consideration is given to the idea of sending additional antitoxin by air, but Territorial Governor Bone realizes the dog sled relay is still the best way to transport the antitoxin. But to speed things up, he authorizes funds to increase the number of dog teams and drivers. Seppala now is only scheduled to go 170 miles to Shack Tulik and then back to Nome. This nearly cuts in half the mileage he'll run but still allows him to make the treacherous Norton Sound crossing that everyone acknowledges he can do quickly and safely. But Cephala has already left Nome, and there's no good way to contact him. Gunnar Kassen, who worked with Cephala and his dogs, heads off to be part of the relay. Kassen ignored Cephala's instructions to use Fox as his leader, instead selecting a black dog with one white front leg named Balto. Along the route, other mushers are instructed to keep an eye out for Seppala and his team of 20 huskies so they can stop him and tell him the new plan. This week, ice fog as the trail turns deadly. Let's talk about ice. We're used to thinking of ice as smooth. We picture water freezing in an ice cube tray or the smooth surface of an indoor ice skating rink. But ice on rivers is different. And ice on a mighty river like the Yukon is far more complicated. Even those with years of experience are sometimes surprised by what they encounter. It's true that water freezes at 32 degrees Fahrenheit or zero Celsius, but it's also true that it takes time for water to freeze at that temperature. And when you're dealing with a river like the Yukon, there is a lot of water. The Yukon flows for nearly 2,000 miles. It has an average flow of 1 million cubic feet every three seconds and it discharges nearly 50 cubic miles of water a year into the Bering Sea. How much water is that that goes out into the Bering Sea? It's enough to bury every inch 
of the island of Manhattan, 11,000 feet deep. It's a lot of water. If you've ever looked at a lake or a pond as it freezes, you'll notice that ice forms on the surface before it freezes lower down. So much of the time you'll have liquid water underneath the surface of ice, even when the temperatures are far below freezing. It's more complicated with rivers than with lakes. In a lake, the water is relatively still, but river water is moving. And as long as some of it isn't frozen, it continues to move. Temperature fluctuations can cause uneven layers of ice, and the flowing water underneath the ice often causes that ice to move. Additionally, pressure from above, from people, animals, or vehicles on top of the ice, can weaken the ice in places. And to further complicate things, the wind will blow snow and uneven ice around on the surface. This results in overflow, where ice breaks and some of the water that's underneath and hasn't frozen comes up onto the surface. And in extreme conditions, there might be holes in the ice or areas of ice that are weak enough for dogs, sleds, or humans to fall through. If you've ever been to the Iditarod Restart in Willow, it's not unusual for there to be a few areas of overflow on Willow Lake, even when the temperatures are far below freezing and the ice is generally strong enough to hold the weight of 70 to 100 dog trucks, thousands of dogs, and several thousand onlookers. On January 30th, 1925, musher Charlie Evans gets the antitoxin from George Nolner at Bishop Mountain on the Yukon. It is 3 a.m. and more than 60 degrees below zero. Evans and Nolner head inside and warm the antitoxin by the fire for an hour before Evans leaves. Evans, who piloted riverboats along the Yukon and nearby Koyukuk River, is very familiar with this part of the trail and has spent most of his winters moving furs and supplies through the area by dog sled. He is well aware that the mighty Yukon's rushing waters move ice flows during the winter, especially around a sharp turn the Yukon takes at Bishop Mountain. Ice there is regularly pushed up against the riverbank, causing rocks and dirt to spill onto the surface and often be carried away from the shore as the ice continues to move. Evans sets out a little before 4.30 a.m. He's tired from waiting up for Nolner, but anxious to keep the relay going. Ten miles from Bishop Mountain, Evans encounters massive overflow. Where the Cayucuk meets the Yukon, the rushing waters underneath the ice cause the ice to crash together, creating cracks for water to come up onto the ice and uneven surfaces that could injure the dog's paws. Evans' dogs are well-trained and familiar with the area and mostly are able to avoid the overflow. Evans knows the night is cold, but he doesn't know at the time that this will be the coldest temperatures the serum run faces, 64 degrees below zero. And then there's wind on top of that. The liquid water from the overflow will freeze in these conditions, but it freezes unevenly onto ice that is already uneven. More importantly, something stranger and more deadly happens when there's liquid water and it's that cold. Because heat rises, the heat from the relatively warm liquid water, just barely above freezing, moves upward, rising into the air. With more water coming up from behind it, that causes vapor from the water to rise up from the overflow. The frozen water droplets remain suspended in the air, creating dense areas that are impossible to see through. This is known as ice fog. Ice fog can literally seem like a curtain as breezes and the movement of people and dogs cause the suspended frozen water to move. 
Sometimes, the fog parts, allowing brief periods where you can see what's in front of you. More often, you just have to ride out the ice fog, which can be dozens of feet thick and go on for miles. Early white settlers referred to ice fog as the white death, believing the ice crystals would go into their lungs and cause them to die. But natives such as the half Athabascan Charlie Evans knew it was a dangerous condition, but one you could live through if you were lucky. Ice fog, like the Northern Lights, can be beautiful and inspiring. And when the world becomes shimmery and still and ice literally hangs in the atmosphere, it's hard not to attribute it to the actions of some supernatural spirits. Certainly, it's a glimpse into a world most humans never see. For Charlie Evans, the ice fog comes up suddenly and seems to swallow his entire dog team, getting so bad that he can't even see the tip of his sled out in front of him. Many mushers faced with these conditions panic. Ensnared in the ice fog, you lose track of all reference points and quickly become completely disoriented. It gets impossible to tell which way you're facing, how fast you're going, and sometimes even which way is up. Without any landmarks, the mind wheels and panic can set in quickly. Even time seems to change and elongate in the thick, thick mist you worry you will never emerge from. Evans, who has experienced ice fog before, knows he has to ride out the condition. He grabs tightly to his sled, plants himself solidly on the runners, and puts his trust in his dogs. Lead dogs without experience will often falter and refuse to keep going in ice fog, but Charlie Evans has leaders who have some experience with the condition and lots of experience with this part of the trail. He hangs on and lets them go. The wind picks up, blowing sand and dirt in from the banks of the Yukon. In the extreme cold, Evan feels the sand and dirt on him like he's being pelted by hundreds of shards of broken glass. Charlie Evans eventually emerges from the ice fog before getting to the village of Koyukuk. Evans' father, John Evans, who organized dog teams in this area, is waiting. He hears the soft squeak of the runners on snow in the distance and runs outside to greet his son. John Evans yells for Charlie to come inside and warm himself by the fire. I can't, Charlie Evans yells. The dogs might refuse to run again if we stop and rest. Charlie Evans and his dog speed by, leaving his father looking on. Evans' two leaders are mixed breeds borrowed to fill out his team. They have short hair and are not equipped for the extreme cold. They're more bird dogs than sled dogs. Normally, Evans would have protected their groin areas with rabbit furs, but he forgot in his rush to keep the relay going out from Bishop Mountain. Past Koyukuk, Evans' lead dogs develop severe chafing on their legs from their harnesses, which are rubbing their short fur and skin raw. Their legs, already frostbitten, start to turn blue, but they keep going. Finally, one of the dogs drops. Then the second goes down. Evans sets the hook and walks up to the front of his team. Both dogs are so severely injured they can barely move. They can't stand, let alone run. Evans carries them back to the sled and puts them both in the basket. Evans tries several dogs in lead, but his team won't run anymore. Finally, he releases the snowhook, goes to the front of the sled, straps a harness to his shoulder, 
and leads the dogs forward himself. By some reports, Evans is still the lead dog the rest of the way to Nolato. By other reports, his dogs eventually run without a human leader up front. In any event, around 10 a.m., Evans and his team pull into Nolato, the original proposed halfway meeting point for the antitoxin. Evans parks by a cabin and carries the two injured lead dogs from his sled basket inside. He slumps by the stove. The dogs aren't moving. It takes a while to acknowledge the obvious. Both dogs are dead. They died in the cold, having given their lives to keep the serum moving. Evans and his team took nearly six hours to go a mere 30 miles. As was customary, the antitoxin is brought in and warmed by the fire in Nalato. But within 30 minutes, driver Tommy Patsy, with a fresh team of dogs, is ready to take the antitoxin onto Caltag, where a trail leaves the Yukon River behind for a long trek out to the coast. Asked decades later about his role in the 1925 serum run, Charlie Evans looked into the distance and said, it was really cold. Next time, Portage. This has been the 1925 Serum Run on Mushing Radio.